women as well down the line. No way. I'm sorry. You got to leave the women out of motorcycling. There's no eight, way you could have girls riding motorcycles. No, yeah, no, why no, would no. we oh want, God. you know, uh, more yeah. sensible people yeah. on motorcycles oh, we're gonna be we have a bunch of lunatics? Yeah, yeah we're going to get our asses kicked. <laughs> God damn it. All right, well, you know, you're going to be in the history books of introducing women to riding motorcycles. And, yeah, we're know, all, right? we're, we're all, we're all in a world of shit now. <laughs> no, that's awesome. They can teach us a thing or two, brother. You've met Jennifer Braun. Oh yeah. She can teach. She's taught me more than. <laughs> Don't even get me started. <laughs> Wait, not even right? go that way. R E R. No, that's really, really awesome. And uh, the fact of the matter is, I mean, um, interestingly enough, uh, I've seen that women have gotten farther in motorcycling than other sports. We got some folks out there right now, really kicking ass in the Isle of Man, you know, and um, yeah. everything else in between. Everywhere. Um, yeah, truly. Track, so, um, extra, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So there, there is no gender difference in motorcycling. Really, it has to do with like, you know, just wide open. Yar yar. But um, yar yar, Cliff. Uh, I know you're out there out right right now, and um, yeah, um, I want to hook you up with Hawk and. Um, uh, Hawk Posada and his program. I think um, it's all about the children and also the next generation. You know, um, definitely, exactly. It, it's a big oh, thing, great. and um, yeah, um, on the same page, brother. It's all about the next generation, and it's really hard for them to learn now. And we can make that easier, especially now. And also, what you have, which is what we never had, was actually someone willing to teach you that had bikes and gear. <laughs> Usually you had to well, go steal it and shit. The, the, the first part of that equation we're working on now. We have gear, thanks to all of you. So much. I can't uh, express it. I mean, we've had so many gear donations. It's been fantastic, Alex. I mean that. Uh, um, so, Clay, do you had, need some bikes? We're now starting to get some bikes, dude. So we're getting enough funding where we think we can go out and buy some old used or bikes and have our own. Okay. And so that's so, the next level. We nice. need new bikes. So all you um, looters yeah, out there, yeah. if you loot a bike between uh, 80 cc and 250, just leave it in front of any radio, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, we need new bikes. Yeah, actually, so like looters 50, get us bikes. 50s, brother. We're really looking. Actually, we have like so we have a, a few 125s and uh, a 110 or two. And um, but really the smaller bikes, my friend, like the fifties. Okay, like that's PW50s, interesting. Like PW fifties with uh, uh, what do you call them? The training wheels. Ooh, so yeah. you're looking for well, entry level bikes. Wheels, man. But you're looking no for entry level. level bikes, yeah. Entry level bikes, fifties, seventies, nineties, one tenths. So you heard really, it here. The smaller the better. You heard it here on Racers Alley. Uh, I want you five listeners to goddamn get your checks out. And buy some bikes. So we really need some <laughs> between 80 that, and 150s. And, and donate uh, them. And donate them. Yeah. Berkeley on the Yamaha, sell them bikes. But uh, so, um, yeah, actually, Clay, uh, so what we're looking for is really beginner bikes. Yes, please, Alex. That's really where we're That's deficient important. as far as loaners go. We actually don't. We have an XR80. I want to give props to the Sunday morning ride crew, wow. David Allegri and Tony Rua is coming together to bring us awesome. an XR80 cool. and donating gear yeah. as well. Hillary Davis from Dame Stone Care made a huge uh, cash donation recently. That's awesome. That's why we're in a position where we can start to um, get, uh, and there's so many donors. I mean, dude, I can go through the list and I will. You can um, uh, next time, whenever you want, dude. Um, 
we appreciate this because guess what? I mean, we're kind of in our way, but we got to teach a younger generation. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, yeah, and so on that note, Alex, if you don't mind, I was going to just actually hand over the mic to my son and kind of, you know, let him express why we're doing this because he's actually been a huge help. Can I ask uh, him a couple of questions? Happen. Yeah, and you haven't gotten to meet him. He's kind of the him and his sister are the prototypical first Uh-oh. rides, first riders. I would say. I'll be nice yeah. then. <laughs> probably know that this has been a war. I mean, been in the work for a number of years now. I mean, my dad. Is this his son? I haven't heard you yet. Yeah, Get the mic closer. Son. Yeah, you need yeah. to meet him. Okay. Uh, is your dad a yeah, boxers or briefs guy? And has he ever actually like you know opened the fridge and drank the milk out of the refrigerator? <laughs> totally. He's got his own place. Yeah, That's how mature he is. Oh, damn, he's a racer. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's in a van. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in all seriousness. Man in a van with a plan. <laughs> so, who am I speaking with? Yeah, AJ is the name. AJ? Uh, and it's Alex, correct? Uh, sometimes. AJ? Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Nice to meet you, mate. And uh, you're helping yeah, Cliff out, you. and you're part of the class and program. Uh, what would you like to say? Um, I just want to talk about, uh, like, I don't know, general stuff. I, I don't know if I can chart what I'm going to say yet, but I think I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent myself. Well, do you like peanut butter with bananas or just peanut butter? I mean, there's a difference. You know, white bread. Uh, it's like, Why not are. both? Uh, okay. But really, um... Yeah, so this has been a process that we have been uh, just, it's been in the works for a while now. And we've been really just getting it more and more together. You know, as my dad says, I'm kind of like the pilot of all this because he taught me at a very young age. Nice. And I'm very thankful for that because when I'm on a t- any, like any two wheeled, uh, like construction, whether it's a bicycle or a motorcycle, I feel comfortable, you know. Um, like I, I, it's, it's like second nature muscle memory, you know, and I've, I've almost always felt that way. I generally don't doubt myself too much when I'm riding. It's only now that I'm starting to dirt jump on BMXs that I'm getting a little stressed at times. So, really, uh, though, uh, jump on BMX yeah. bikes. Yeah. So are you yeah, in your twenties? <laughs> no one jumps on BNX bikes in their thirties. <laughs> I know, right? I'm actually yeah, I'm actually today I've been painting my BMX and uh just redoing it and uh just upgrading some parts. Wade, his favorite color is purple. Yar. Yeah, there you go. All right, you're our pal instantly. <laughs> Ding, we have a winner, folks. <laughs> right? A little bit of black. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, anyways, are yeah. Yeah. I'm glad yeah, you're it, a part of the really program. Crazy. Yeah, I'm really glad to be a part of it, and I'm just so stoked to have the help of all of our volunteers because this is not something me and my dad could be doing by ourselves. Definitely That's not. a huge difference. Like, and there you are for so that. many pieces to this puzzle, but you know we're starting to see the image. You know we're yeah. starting to see the picture. Evan from Monkey Moto School has joined the crew. Evan, Evan Arkush? Oh, God yeah, damn it. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you should burn this effigy, and then you'll be fine. No, Evan's more part of our wrecking crew here, and he's awesome. <laughs> he just sent one of the girls. Hey, in we're going to suck you guys earlier. in, too. You're going to be drawn in. <laughs> no, Evan's, Evan's actually part of us here, and 
Yeah, he's had a few. I, I believe they just found his third stolen bike. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Evan's had hard times here or there. But, uh, you know, that's great that you're part of the program. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, all we want to do is just um, here, just, uh, yeah, let's just make biking and racing go on. Like yeah. Wade yeah. said, uh, we're a show about motorcycling, motorcycling stories, and uh, just trying to keep everything going proper. Yep, I think that's what we're all trying to do is just spread the love. Yar, you know, there you it's go. fun riding bikes. All right, so yar, yar. Uh, please send us a medium pizza a deep dish. And uh, we're at Beat New Radio. What? Where are we going? We don't like deep dish? Yeah, motorcycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a motorcycle. Make it large. <laughs> Why not? Our pizza, right? yar, yar. Next show, next show. But thanks for calling in. And um, really, you know, as far as our show goes, um, we can set, uh, just like Pedro, I'm sorry, Pedro Valdez Feliz, uh, that we missed you earlier at 7 o'clock, but um, you can you can have a piece of our show, uh, uh, you know, one or three times a week or whatever, and call in and just definitely make sure that you let folks listen and let them know what you're up to, because, I mean, as far as what you're doing, it's fucking wonderful, and uh, we're just, so sweet, you know, it, it really is. It's, Thank uh, you, Everyone really wants want to that. build a network. We're so, just trying to build a network, buddy. We exactly. don't want to compete with any of these other providers, like Hawk and them. We want to help them, dude. No, I we think I think uh, everyone's together on this. Yeah. And yeah. it's all about just being motorcyclists. I mean, I'm sure if Hawk listens to this, I mean, he would probably be going, yar, yar. So, uh, you know, um, yeah, we're all in this together. Way. Um, yeah. So we're let's just all get more motorcycle racing going on. And uh, in the future, I'm going to run for president. We're not going to have religion anymore. It's if you're a rider or you ain't. You know, and well, then we'll, yeah, we ride. We ride or you don't. You know, <laughs> R-I-R. Ride to live, live to ride. Live to ride. <laughs> but thanks for calling in, folks. And um, You know it. Yeah, we love you, you all. Uh, be safe. Uh, I believe you're, Clay, you're out there having a good time. Yeah, you too, Alex. Let me know. Wade, Brian, if you need anything whatsoever, man, I'm there. Thank you. Uh, fresh apple pie. Yep. All right. Uh, cheers. Mm-hmm. Cheers, baby. <laughs> cheers, Dad. Cheers, Much love. Be safe. <laughs> All right, yeah. So that was a fun time. Let's have, uh, what time is it? It's 8 o'clock. Boy, my show is way past over, and that's why Pam's here. Uh, oh, Pam says nothing's happening, so we're just still rolling. Hi, Pam. There's no one here at eight. We're still on. I do All want right. to say before we forgot, though, happy birthday to our late friend Robbie. Oh, yes, we haven't even yeah. gone, and that's yeah. why I had the uh, the horn out. Go, Robbie. Uh, Pam had a horn on her show, and Robbie was always our horn guy. Yeah. So R E R. Sound effects. R E R. Brian, do it again. <laughs> and Pam Tastic, I can't hear you. Come in here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I just I remember his little black outfit with his little purple piping. I love this little purple piping <laughs> yeah. on his suit. Purple piping. Yeah, purple piping. So cute. Subculture. But, uh, yeah, uh, Robbie's birthday was uh, just uh, passed. And uh, part of our wrecking crew, uh, motor tire guy. And we loved him a, a, a shit ton. And, uh, yeah, yep. he just kind of went quickly. and uh, But he's with us. And uh, he'll always be with us. And especially here at uh, 
uh, well, actually, what are we doing? Uh, Racers Alley, Mutiny uh, <laughs> Radio. So yeah, yeah. Let's take a break, and uh, we might be on for a little more. Let's talk. And four-minute critiques from everyone. Get positive, my host, Pam Benjamin. Pump those dick jokes every Thursday, seven to nine, with True Hustle Thursdays. Hashtag THC. That's hashtag THC. You want more open mics? Fridays, six to eight. Happy hour with guest host and George D. Smith. Pew, pew, pew! Four open mics every week at Mutiny Radio, brother! Take a seat at Asiento, a great place to meet friends, have delicious tapas and drinks, and relax with your neighbors. Located at Bryant 21st Street in the Deep Mission, Kitty Corner Block from Mutiny Radio. Come and get a drink during the comedy festival and enjoy happy hour pricing all night long with your festival ticket. A great neighborhood bar. Come take a seat at Asiento. <laughs> The Roxy Theater is San Francisco's favorite nonprofit art house cinema, bringing you the best, coolest, weirdest, most thought-provoking movies of the past, present, and future. Hands down, there is no better way to get your film fix than at this legendary historic theater. Visit www.roxy.com. That's www.roxie.com today for showtimes and tickets. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Are you tired? The crops are all in. And the peaches are rotten, the oranges are packed in the creosote dumps. They're flying them back to the Mexican border to save all their money and then wait back again. Good morning, mutineers. This is The Bee, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio on mutinyradio.fm. just the same. They died in the hills and they died in the valley. Somewhere in the heaven without any name. Goodbye to my one, goodbye, Rosalina. Adios, mi amigo. Jesus, Maria. You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane. All they were called. Some of us are illegal and others not working. Our work contracts out and we have to move on. Six 
600 miles to the Mexican border. They chase us like rustlers, like outlaws, like thieves. show. Welcome to you.
Cooper, maybe a young Turk, maybe the head of some big TV network, maybe rich or poor, maybe blind or lame, be living in another country, under another name, but you, you gotta serve somebody. Construction worker, working on a home, living in a mansion, might live in a dome, might own guns, you might keep it on, you might be somebody's landlord, or you might own a bank, but you gotta serve somebody, oh, serve somebody. With a spiritual pride You may be a councilman Taking bribes on the side Working in a barber shop May know how to cut hair Maybe somebody's mistress Or maybe somebody's love There's somebody
Radio. James there and you know you got to serve somebody good morning everyone this is the B welcome to labor and love radio on mutiny radio and mutiny radio FM this morning from 2781 21st Street in the Meadow Meadow, the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco. This is the show where we tell you like it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, wherever you work, You're probably on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Good morning, everybody. We had uh, our opening set there. Started out, of course, with deportees. Deportees by the highwaymen. Highwaymen. None other than Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Um, quite a group there. Johnny Cash singing lead there on Just Deportees. Much more about that in a bit. We had, then we had Traveling Soldier by the Dixie Chicks about to the fact that every day somewhere American troops are involved in wars. Every day. This is for those soldiers who are out there and also to get them back home. Wars where workers of one class shoot down workers of another class, thin out the possibility of resistance to capitalism. And last we had Etta James, Queen of the Blues, Gotta Serve Somebody. The Bob Dylan classic reminds us that yes, your indecision, your hesitation, serve someone. By just standing around, you're rushing backwards. Okay, now I remarked about that case. We're talking about that case of uh, deportees. This is, the song, of course, relates the fact that even though <clears throat> these people have come to the United States and worked, you know, they're uncelebrated. No one remembers them. Just barely their names, and other than that, they'll be just deportees. The song was written by Woody Guthrie and popularized by Pete Seeger. Since then, it's been recorded by virtually everybody. Uh, in the 
certainly in the country and western genre. Um, anyway, a, a Chicano writer named Tim Z. Hernandez decided that, yeah, that wasn't good enough. He wanted to go and find out who these people were. This is part of a uh, an interview on Latino USA on NPR. Here we go. 32 people on the plane, four Americans, including three crew members and an immigration official, and 28 migrant farm workers. Everyone died that morning, all in the same way. But they were not all treated the same after death. The 28 Mexican field workers on that plane were known as braceros. They had come here at the request of the U.S. government and were headed back to Mexico, but didn't make it. After the crash, only the remains of the four Americans were sent back to their families. The Mexican citizens were buried in a mass grave in California under a tiny plaque that read, 28 Mexican citizens who died in an airplane accident near Colinga. 28 Mexican citizens. That's all they would call them. And for decades, that's all there was. No one identified the remains of the 28 passengers. No one asked for their families. No one really paid attention until a Mexican-American author came along and it became personal. From NPR and Futuro Media, this is Latino USA. I'm Fernanda Chavarri, guest hosting today's episode, where we go back 70 years to find out the names of those 28 unnamed people and find out how one man made it his life mission to give them names. And to do that, I'm joined by producer Maggie Freeling. Hi, Maggie. Hey, Fernanda. So when you and I found out about this incident that took place 70 years ago, we were talking about how these people were virtually forgotten. They were nameless in death and in the news. But the crash itself, it turns out that more people might know about it than they realize. Goodbye to my own goodbye, Rosalina. Adios, mi amigos. And it's all because of one song that kept the story alive throughout the decades, a song that has a very long, confusing title, Deportee, parentheses, Plane Wreck at Los Gatos. And it's sung here by Pete Seeger, a super famous American folk music icon. 600 miles to that Mexico border, they chase us like outlaws and but Pete didn't write the song. He just made it famous in the 1950s. Pete's good friend Woody Guthrie wrote it. When Woody heard about the crash on the radio, he felt this strong sense of injustice. So he wrote his feelings down as a poem, and it later became the song. All these friends are scattered like dry leaves. The radio says they are just these friends who are scattered like dried leaves. The radio said they were just deportees. These kinds of poems and lyrics were not unusual for Woody Guthrie. He was always sort of a revolutionary. And Woody was kind of the embodiment of your quote-unquote everyman in the sense that he lived and worked and wrote and traveled among the people. 
I'm Nora Guthrie, and I'm Woody Guthrie's daughter. We called Nora to find out why Woody wrote this. There was a very strong similarity between the migrant workers in the 1930s and the Okies in the 1930s. The Okies were farmers in Arkansas, Kansas, Tennessee, and, of course, Oklahoma. They lost their homes during the Dust Bowl and migrated to California. Woody Guthrie was one of these people. When Woody came to California, he was homeless, living in tents and little tin shacks. And so were the Mexican field workers. <laughs> They're kind of all in the same boat. And I think that just instinctively, he connected with their plight. He didn't start out to be political. He started out just being curious. So he would always dig further and further uh, into the news reports. And that was what happened with the plane wreck at Los Gatos. Somewhere along the way, Pete Seeger, who was Woody's friend, got a hold of the poem, set it to music, and started singing it. Then, the song got huge. It took on a life of its own and was covered by dozens of musicians. Johnny Cash, Johnny Rodriguez. Dolly Parton. famous all-American music icons singing about Mexican farm workers in the 1940s. And it's really crazy because this song was sung throughout the decades, and yet nobody bothered to find out who these people were. And my father left a lot of songs like this. Sometimes I call them like seeds to be harvested by the next generation. So the, the thing is that he left this song with the question, why weren't the deportees named? These were the words that kept sort of, I kept humming in my head, all they will call you will be deported, all they will call uh, I'm Tim Hernandez, and I'm the author who's been working on this Plane Wreck at Los Gatos for the last uh, seven years. The name of your book is? The name of my book is All They Will Call You. So here's where Tim comes in. He's a professor and an author, so he's always sort of digging for stories. One day, Tim was doing research for something unrelated back in 2010 when he came across a newspaper article. And it said 100 people see an airplane fall out of the sky, ship plunge to earth, and, and it was a farm labor accident. So Tim was like, weird, that sounds familiar. And he realized that it was the same story as the one he knew from the song. And the same way that Woody Guthrie was bothered by the injustice decades ago, Tim, too, wanted resolution for the families of the victims. So Tim set off on a quest. You know, I just let my curiosity sort of pull me, and I began to ask, who is all, and who are they, and what do they call you? And, and that's, uh, that's just what kept me going. That was a, a quest that over the years became more and more personal for Tim, as he saw the similarities between his life growing up in the Central Valley and the migrant farm workers who died that day. You know, growing up, the son of migrant farm workers, I saw firsthand the moments where my family uh, felt voiceless, and um, and I started to see them play out as I got older, not beyond my family. I'd see them play out in the broader community, you know. Tim put himself in the shoes of these 28 families and thought, this could have been me. 
this could have been my family. I was born and raised here in California's San Joaquin Valley, the agricultural hub here. Uh, my parents were actually migrant farm workers originally from South Texas and New Mexico. You know, kind of growing up with migrant family, uh, you know, we traveled a lot, quite a bit, working in different fields and different harvests um, throughout the year. And my parents did that pretty much, uh, you know, up until, I don't know, I was about maybe eight or nine. And although Tim's family didn't participate in the Bacero program, they did spend generations working the fields in Texas and California. Farming is America's biggest industry. All such farm jobs, which are tough, dirty, or unpleasant, are generally referred to as stoop labor. The Bracero program, to summarize, was a seasonal worker program that was a sort of amicable agreement between the U.S. and Mexico that went on from the early 40s to the mid-60s. At that time, the U.S. desperately needed workers to pick fruits and vegetables. It isn't easy to find men willing to take on such undesirable kinds of work. Understandably, then, the American farm labor supply falls short and is supplemented by Mexican citizens. So they gave Mexican farm workers temporary permits to come here and do the work. Millions of Mexican workers came and went. When the harvesting season was over and the U.S. government didn't need them anymore, they would send them back by train or fly them by plane. And that morning, that's exactly what was happening. Those 28 migrant workers were flying from San Francisco to El Centro, right on the border with Mexico, in a U.S. government chartered plane. So based on Tim's research and interviews with the families over the years, here's what happened after the crash. Officials recovered as many scattered body parts as they could. Then, they formally notified the families of the four Americans and sent them caskets of pieced together remains, some as far as upstate New York. As for the Mexican passengers, the leftover body parts were also put in caskets, but they were not sent back to Mexico. They were buried in that mass grave we mentioned earlier. 14 on one side, 14 on the other, in Fresno, California. So the Mexican passengers' bodies were never repatriated. Some families in Mexico were notified by the Mexican government via letter. Others only heard about it on the radio. It's unclear exactly how each of the families found out, and if they even knew where their loved ones were buried. We reached out to the Mexican government officials at the embassy in D.C., but were denied an interview. Of course, we weren't going to find people working there who were working for the Mexican government 70 years ago, but we wanted to know how the government handled this. An official said via email that today their policy is to help families in Mexico find funeral homes and cremation services in the U.S. and that based on the family's financial need, the Mexican government can help them pay for part of the cost of getting the remains back to Mexico. We also wanted to know how only some of the victims of the crash ended up identified. So to find out, we flew to meet Tim Hernandez in California. This is all cattle territory up here. It's uh, Los Gatos Canyon. It's all ranchers. In fact, Larry's uh, family were cattle ranchers up there. They were wrecked. Did you see the baby cows? I'm sorry, I know. <laughs> they were the cutest little baby cows. <laughs> Did you see the big long horns Yes. Yeah. We're driving to Colinga about an hour southwest from Fresno with Tim and his friend Larry Hawes. Larry's a Harley-riding, leather-vest-wearing white guy. He's sort of Tim's sidekick and an unofficial historian of his own family, the family that owned the property where the plane crashed 70 years ago. It's hard. Every turn looks the same here, unless you know exactly where the crash happened. So then that's what prompted me to want to call, find Larry's, the Gaston family. 
so that I could identify exactly where it happened. Uh, I have to ask, what are we driving through? What is what is this? This is called the oil patch, and this is the Kalinga oil field, and uh, this is uh, Kalinga is actually coaling station A. Oil was actually discovered here. And today, there's a whole bunch of industrial oil derricks covering a huge part of a barren desert area. The plane would have been able to see these oil derricks as it was coming in here this way. And because he had crash landed that airplane twice before, it, it makes sense that one could actually, you, know, you could surmise from that that he was more than likely looking for a strip of dirt to land on. There's nothing you could do. Crash landed it twice? <laughs> that same exact airplane he had crash landed twice before. Okay, so it wasn't the exact plane, but the kind of plane, a Douglas DC-3, which back in the 30s and 40s was a pretty revolutionary plane. Frank Atkinson, the pilot, was used to flying and crash landing the DC-3. So he thought he could land that plane again, and he might have been able to if all that was wrong was a plane malfunction, but... Plane wing broke off and it started spinning out of control and throwing people out. This is it. Yeah. So, we're here? Yeah, we are here. We're going through the barbed wire fence. I'm so short. This barely works. <laughs> This is the actual crash site, and this was where the main bodies were at, and dead people were everywhere, right where we're standing. Mary wasn't born when the plane crashed, but growing up, he heard stories about that day and about how his family raced to the scene to help in any way they could. Larry's mom and his Aunt June were little girls at the time. His Aunt June was nine years old when she saw the wreckage and is the only surviving witness in Larry's family. June was standing, you know, not too far off here looking at and witnessing all this. June is turning 80 soon, and she still remembers it all in very graphic detail. So we called her to get her account of what happened. We saw bushes with brains hanging on it, and my thought then, as a little girl, that looks like decorating a Christmas tree. It was just all over with these brains. At the time, June didn't realize the impact this would have on her beyond the trauma of witnessing the crash. Do you remember, as you got older, learning more about it? I do remember because my mother was following it in the papers. And I remember her shortly after that saying, this has become an international incident because they've buried all of these uh, people together in a mass grave, then that really occurred to me how really terrible that was, that they were just demeaning these people because they weren't us. By leaving their name off, I finally came to see what an insult it was. Tim also felt like the 28 people who died that day were not treated humanely or equal to the families of the American passengers. So he wanted to right that wrong. Tim felt that these braceros were sort of invisible in life. And then in death, they weren't even given a name. In some big dream I might have in the future, maybe put us some kind of a headstone marker with their names on it. So first, he went to the cemetery in Fresno where the mass grave is. He wanted to see the plot. So he asked Carlos Rascón, the cemetery director, to show him. After they walked over and saw the tiny 
plaque in the back of the cemetery that read 28 Mexican citizens, Tim asked Carlos to see the cemetery's ledger of names. Surely the cemetery would have a record of who was buried there, right? But when Carlos pulled it out of the archives... It just said 20 uh, Mexican nationals 28 times. At this point, Carlos also wanted to find their names. He wanted to know who was buried in his cemetery. So Carlos joined Tim on his search, which led them to one more place, the Hall of Records in Fresno. That's the place that keeps all birth and death certificates. And it was there that they were finally able to get a list of names. But they quickly realized that list was unreliable. In Mexico, you usually have two last names, your maternal last name and paternal last name, and so many of them were treated as first names. There was somebody with the last name Lara that was turned into a woman named Laura, and many of the names in Spanish were turned into Italian names. So they knew right away this list was botched. The fact that they were misspelled, it kind of maybe shows a little bit of who might have been behind the pin or the books. Sure enough, there had always been a list with the names. But why didn't it make it to the cemetery? I would think that it's just, it was a very sad oversight, I would say. So there they were with an actual list of names in their hands for the first time, and it was wrong. But then, Carlos remembered that every November, on the Day of the Dead, someone came by to leave flowers at the mass grave. Someone was visiting a loved one. This was Tim's first real clue that these people were not totally forgotten. He wanted to find who that person was. So Tim put out a call on the local paper in Fresno that said, if you or someone you know is related to any of the 28 Mexican passengers who died in that plane crash in 1948, contact me. And someone did. That's coming up after the break. Okay, and uh, we'll take a break here too. Play the rest of that later in the show. So far, Tim, Tim Hernandez, the uh, Chicano writer, has decided to find out the names of those people and not leave them just being deportees. Uh, great story. Okay. Here's some poetry by Jack Kerouac and Steve Allen. I had a slouch hat top one time. I had a slouch hat too one time. The old slouch hat. I just keep walking around and he keeps walking around with me. Around and around that necktie counter we went. When it rained I wore my old slouch hat. It was a good felt that I uh, had to carry through many rainy days, late fall and early spring. Perhaps it was a rainy day and the house dick might have saw my hat. Each tie on that ring worth six bucks. Brooks Brothers, 60 bucks worth of ties. Slacks with peculiarities. I couldn't even find a pair of slacks I thought it was suitable to wear. Wrapped one pair around me and pinned it in with a safety pin. Pulled up my trousers and went out and looked at myself in the mirror. Oh no, those won't do. And I walked out. Wrapped the slacks around my waist. 
Took two other pair, went to the mirror, threw them at the salesman. No, those won't do. Good afternoon, and walked out. The slouch hat I got at Harvard Club, Yale Club, Princeton Club, or one of the other, Dartmouth Club, University Club. Always barred the yacht club, because it was a little over my kin. Because the doorman knew that only Mr. Astor, Mr. Vanderbilt, and Mr. Whitney belonged. He couldn't say, good morning, Mr. Astor, because he knew I wasn't Mr. Astor. I always figured a way to heal into those other clubs. Not only a member of Who's Who, but a Who's Who also have to be a member of Who's Who in New York in the special clique of Who's. <laughs> I'd get in the athletic club many times. And I'd go up in the billiard room, and I would wander back around the room, hands and back, and Every coat rack I backed up against the field for the wallet. One day I walked out of there with 10 wallets. Bellboy looking me over. Pretty soon a very dignified looking gentleman come up and buzzed the bellboy. He says, who? And I says, man told me his name while we are drinking at the bar and told me to meet him in this billiard room at the athletic club. I don't see him, so I best I better go. Well, tell me about the old slouch hat. Oh, one of my numerous trips to one of the numerous clubs in New York City. The hat finally was left in the hotel, which I had to leave rather hurriedly one night, never to return. So the hat was given to the cast-offs of the hotel, which they collect in rummage cells. And now be worn by one of the members of Skid Row, New York City, the Bowery. I seen that hat by moonlight. Yeah. I had a pointed mustache, and I mean pointed, half inch from here. Double-breasted vest and a derby hat and striped trousers, English shoes, black, very pointed. They were Hannah shoes. People on Broadway turned and looked at me. The worst is yet to come. I had a paint sneer and a long black ribbon to my buttonhole. And I wore a carnation, white or red. Boy, did I look like something. A year later, I got caught. I was dressed differently and everything, but boy, that mustache and that pince necks was really out of this world. I used that outfit six months. Finally had to pack it in because it was too well worn. Pince nez was in a coat I stole. Mustache I grew in the sanitarium while taking one of my numerous drug cures. My mother comes to see me, she says, oh no, cut it off. I'm just having a little fun, mother. Took it on the lamb and went to Canada. Late at night, I'm full of morphine, and I come down full of goofballs, too. This guy had ventriloquist doll. He gave out this Texas weaning routine. Hello, sucker. We like your money as well as anybody else's. As a matter of fact, the bigger you roll, the more we take you. He used to get everybody interested with the doll and cut out silhouettes, put stripes in your tie. Wound up in his room and gave him a shot of morphine. Out on the highway, I thumbed the ride into Buffalo, and I put the bum on the guy for something to eat. He said, eat in my drugstore. So he went in the back, and he had corn in the cob and boiled potatoes. Say, fella, I was here, people talk about morphine. What's it look like? He shows me. He had a key, a cabinet. He had bottles of hundreds, quarter grains, half grains, pentapon, dilated, everything. As soon as he tended the customers, I emptied the bottles. Got out of there pretty quick, bought a safety pin in Buffalo, and took a shot in the toilet. Come out and saw a fella shaving, his coat hanging there. Hung my own coat and gave his coat a brush of my hand. Felt his wallet, washed my hands, went out and took off with the wallet. 
So I started out on a shoplifting campaign in Buffalo. It was about 1910. Wasn't very experienced at it. Started out with a top coat and sold it in the taxi cab stand. Next day I decided to get myself some suits and I went up and I had a suit box and I walked about and put the suit box in one of the dressing rooms, looked and fooled and the mirror went out and I hopped those two. Next day, like a damn fool, go out to the same store, but I got a newspaper instead of a suit box. Thought I'd try a new routine. Two guys kind of watching me. I went in, wrapped myself up, two suits, went in the elevator. Bottom gentleman tapped me on the arm. Will you come with me, please? In the county jail, they ate breakfast. You got oatmeal with one spoonful of molasses. For lunch, stew, mostly bones, graveyard stew. And for supper, dinner at night, beans. And you couldn't smoke.
Okay, that was a random set. We had, uh, first of all, Jack Kerouac from an album that he made with uh, Steve Allen, uh, the pianist. Uh, poetry for the Beat Generation. That was Slouch Hat by Jack Kerouac. And then from uh, Jenny Rivera, the late Jenny Rivera, late of... Uh, Born and raised in Long Beach, California. And the bad news this week for her ex, Esteban Loyasa, Loyasa, hope I'm getting that right, who was a pitcher uh, for a while, a very accomplished pitcher, an all-star, started the all-star game for the American League, won 20 games with the Chicago White Sox. Uh was arrested in just across the border here in California with a big catch of uh, cocaine that was in a uh, in a secret room in his house. Jenny sang, Ni princesa ni esclava. I'm not a princess, but I'm not a slave. Just a woman. And John Fromer there, another late Comrade, brother, John Fromer, uh, with We Do the Work. What I want to do now is finish the Deportees uh, documentary. Uh, Tim Z. Hernandez's attempt to find out who those 28 deportees were, the ones who are sung about in the famous Woody Guthrie song. Here we go. take to start something from nothing and what does it take to actually build it i'm guy raz every week on how i built this i speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world find it on npr one or wherever you get your podcasts whose bodies had been buried in a mass grave under a plaque that read 28 Mexican citizens. And not long after Tim put out the call, he got a response. Someone gave me a piece of newspaper and said, look, we're talking about your grandpa's brain uh, crash. This is Jaime Ramirez. We met him in Fresno with Tim. And I started reading it. And he said, I got my computer and I started... Jaime went to his computer and started writing Tim an email. He wrote in Spanish, I know about the accident because that's when my maternal grandfather, named Ramon Paredes, and my uncle, Guadalupe Ramirez Lara, were killed. Jaime then included his address my phone number, and ended with, and, uh, if you need information, just let me know. Anything that you want to know, just... Yeah. <laughs> what do you need to know? I'm right here. <laughs> I was like, oh. And so that was really hopeful. Your email, as short as it was and as quick as it was, it had so much hope inside of it. And so I was excited to, to meet you right away, yeah. And not only is Jaime a surviving family member, but Tim didn't have to go to Mexico. Jaime was right there in Fresno. 
Jaime owns a restaurant called Ole Frijole, and everyone in Fresno knows the restaurant. Most of the employees there are related to Jaime, and they're descendants of two of the passengers from the plane crash, his uncle and his grandpa. So when he first told me that that was his restaurant, I said, no, I said, you're kidding, because I've been there since I was a kid. You know, I've been going there. I'm sure I've seen you before. And yeah. That's my restaurant. And I said, it's yeah, legendary. And he said, you yeah, it is. You were looking for <laughs> me, and I was right there. <laughs> and Jaime was there all along in more than one way. Remember the flowers that someone was putting on the mass grave on Dia de los Muertos? And I said, wow, you know, I wonder who that person is. Later on, I would learn that it was... It was you? Yeah. Yes, I was in Salinas. It was Jaime. He's the one that was putting flowers on the grave. He was Tim's first found family member. And turns out, he was also Tim's golden ticket. The newspaper that my grandmother kept, and I kept it, I don't know why. So here's what happened.
Black, Black Plastic Mutiny Radio FM, the 20th Street Noise Pop Block Party edition. We got a band coming in, Pity Party. They're coming in maybe half hour or so. So if you're listening live, stick around. Even if you're putting it, if you're listening in the future, if you don't like what you hear, go forward a little because then you'll get to hear people talk about making music. Maybe we'll play their music. And we also need money because everything here is falling apart and we did a lot of duct tape, a lot of staples. We're gonna get a psychotic reaction.
Happy Halloween, everybody. The song is called Wings. All right.
check, check, microphone. 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 Oh my lord, get out Hey folks, this is Flat Black Plastic on Mutiny Radio FM. We have the pity party for here for their appearance at the uh, Noise Pop Festival, the 20th Street Block Party, and they're going to be playing at what time? 4:45. 4:45 military time. That's 4:45. If you're in my military, and uh, <laughs> they uh, are here, they brought a record. You just heard them play, and uh, we're gonna ask them how they feel as Bay Area natives. They represent rock or punk rock, as far as what it means to be from the Bay Area. Is that good to ask? Anyone, do you, you, is that a bad question? No, no, no that's, a, that's a good question. Um, but gotta be honest, I think. You're the only one that's not from the Bay. Oh, I guess Dustin's you not from the Bay Area. Yes. Okay, I'm from the Bay Area. <laughs> do you feel like you have to defend it? Do you feel so abused that you wonder if they can take anything. In fact, you kid yourself into thinking that one of them will be able to tolerate so much that you'll actually fall in love with their pain tolerance. You're dead wrong there. That'll never happen. Like rats, things get a little vicious. Talk them back to Earth again. Yes, sure. Throw them some straw to cling to, whatever, so you can fuck them and start it all over again. Guy I knew used to drown his pets. So that they were just on the other side. And then he'd rescue them. The memory he gave them was a smiling, loving face pulling them out of the barrel, laying them on the grass, dust coating their muzzle. He did it in secret for a couple months off and on, but we knew that he really loved something about those dogs. Whatever. It's because he knew what they could take. He was impressed. Stroke him, pet him, hold him, whisper in their ear. Then he'd drown his dog or his friend's dog again. He did it in a big 50 gallon drum that we used for trash cans. His dad would bring them home from the shipyard. Greasy pieces of lettuce floating with particles of who the hell knows what. Anyway, 
showed me one day what it was that got him off. Here's his fourth grader. Bleeding scratches and bite marks on his brown arms, laughing in this unfunny way, and crooning to these yelping, desperate, writhing doggies. Sooner or later, he'd get them. He was fucking inexhaustible. He'd take hours to catch a dog. You could tell what was on his mind. They'd hide, but they'd have to show up at the wash pail and eat the scraps and dry dog food sometime, right? In fact, he knew that they knew he knew, and that made it better. He'd say, you fool, as he grabbed the dog and dragged him away. I'm gonna drown you, Fido. I called every dog Fido and asked me why. Pretty soon the hose would start spinning this greasy mess of water around the barrel. You'd get them in. And you don't know how long it takes for a Labrador to drown. You don't measure it in minutes. 